Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hi, welcome to With Friends Like These. I'm Anna Marie Cox. First, some housekeeping. I am personally still checking the news to make sure I did not just imagine that Georgia went for Biden. But guess what? Georgia went for Biden. And now there's a chance to make Georgia's Senate seats blue as well. There is a runoff in both elections in January. Control of the Senate and the fate of the free world is riding on those two races. I am not kidding. If you want the United States to do anything about climate change, if you want health care to be a human right, if you want to make sure we survive this pandemic without crushing the most vulnerable, you have to help flip the Senate seats in Georgia. So Vote Save America is back with Adopt a State Georgia edition. Sign up to Adopt Georgia at votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia and keep an eye on your email for the best ways to help organizers on the ground. They flipped this state for Biden and Harris. Let's help them finish it out. And more housekeeping. We have a new show email. It is with friends at crooked.com. That's with friends at crooked.com. Please send your comments and suggestions and maybe some criticism, and it will give me a chance to work on taking criticism. Now to the show itself. Our guest is Julie Rogers, the author of Outlove, a queer Christian survival story. Her story is unique. Because Julie wasn't just a queer person trying to survive in a conservative evangelical community. She was paraded around as a a kind of success story, a mascot, a lesbian who wanted to be straight, and then a lesbian who had renounced sex in order to stay in her faith. When I think about our theme of good intentions and this story, I think about how Julie was trying so hard to make everyone happy. She wanted so badly to have her faith and her family. And it wound up almost breaking her. And, as you might guess from the title of her book and what I just told you, we talk a lot about the evangelical church in this episode, and we talk about the ways it has harmed queer people. I know some of you out there are survivors of that kind of abuse. And you may not want to listen to this conversation, and I totally get that. I do not use the term abusive lightly in describing what has happened to queer people who find themselves in evangelical intolerant communities. The good news, of course, is Julie is out of that. She's found a richer life and a richer faith in the process of leaving the evangelical church. Her story has tragedy and loss, but also amazing grace and redemption. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Julie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. To the basic story, which is that you grew up in an incredibly evangelical family and in the church. But you also knew pretty young you were gay. Yes. So I grew up in Texas in a conservative evangelical family. And I was in high school from 2001 to 2004, which... At that time, it was still illegal to have gay sex in Texas, and there were not uh, tons of LGBTQ characters on shows and no National Pride Month. And so I found that in a community where, you know, we heard so much of Christian teaching sort of echoing leaders like James Dobson and Jerry Falwell um, saying homosexuality was an abomination and uh, that's you know, gay people were 
uh, de- destined for hell and that we were essentially gross. Um, I sort of internalized that teaching and I initially had a lot of a fear around it. Um, but I, I, I couldn't really, yeah, I, I came out to my family. I came out to my parents when I was 16 years old, uh, because I sort of started acting out uh, and getting in trouble, I think just to deal with my sense of confusion and pain. And, um, my parents were both told me, you know, that they love me. And I remember my mom, when I came out to her sort of like just bursting into tears and, and hugging me and holding me and rocking me. And, um, my dad saying, you know, just remember your daddy loves you no matter what. And there's this real sense that I was loved. And at the same time, my mom, you know, started Googling to figure out what to do with the problem and the problem being that I was gay. And she found, uh, an organization called Living Hope Ministries, um, in Arlington, Texas. And it was a member ministry of Exodus International, which at that time was the largest sort of ex-gay organization in the world that proclaimed freedom from homosexuality through Jesus Christ. And my mom pulled me out of school early uh, the following week to go meet with uh, a Baptist minister named Ricky Chalette, who worked with a lot of the youth in, in sort of these Living Hope Recovery ministries, uh, which was essentially conversion therapy, even though... They wouldn't have called it that because they weren't licensed professional therapists. They were pastoral counselors. Um, but anyway, so my mom took me to meet with him and that started uh, what eventually became my 10-year experience involved in those ministries seeking healing for my same-sex attractions. The way you describe your father's reaction to you coming out really broke my heart because what he said to you was remember your father will always love you. And that sounds like the thing you should say, right? But it's the way that he said it that actually sort of broke that message. I think he knew, you know, I think he knew that where my mom would land and what the answer needed to be. And that he tended to be a more passive figure in the relationship and already probably knew he was going to allow that to happen. And the other thing that's interesting about your story that makes it um, a unique view of the ex-gay narrative, I suppose, is that you did go to that fellowship or whatever, pastoral service, however we want to describe it, really early in your, you know, sort of sexual growth, right? Like you, you didn't really have much of a chance to be a lesbian, until you were told, no, that's not what you are, or don't do that. And you grew, you kind of grew, you grew up <laughs> in this environment of don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, it was wild when Ricky first asked me. So I started, Ricky asked me to start giving my ex-gay testimony when I was 17 years old for their donor banquet. And I was like, I don't really think I have an ex-gay testimony. Like... <laughs> what would that be? You know, like I had a couple crushes and like, I'm really curious, but I, yeah, I was just, um, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's just completely wild to sort of be taken there at 17. Like when your brain's still developing until you're like in your mid twenties and you haven't even gone through any sort of normal sexual development, um, have never like been able to sort of go through the basic like crushes and hold hands and kiss and write like, you know, notes to put in each other's lockers, like none of that. Uh, But to be in a group with people who were, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, talking about their abusive, you know, relationships they came out of and sort of all going around as if we're in like a sort of, you know, recovery program. And I'm just this kid like, huh. So you describe it, you know, it is almost like a recovery program. You meet once a week. You don't know each other's last names. Um, It isn't like recovery in sort of the guilt and shame part of it, I would say. But something struck me every time you talked about the, the details, which include like having to confess your sexual activity of the past week on a scale of one to 10. Yes. So... (laughs) So first of all, you know, we were expected to confess every, everything. Uh, We would meet with like one-on-one with Ricky, the leader for counseling. And then we would meet in group contexts. 
And it was the young guys group, uh, young guys or guys anywhere under the age of 27 who would go around and, and start by giving a number one through 10 to rate their week. And 10 meant they had anal sex that week. Nine meant they had oral sex, like on down the line, like five was like some porn with maybe like a webcam. And if you like didn't masturbate or do anything, you were a one. And like, we had to talk about sort of why we had any sort of like fall to masturbation, quote unquote, fall to masturbation that week, like why we might've texted an old crush. And we would always sort of be encouraged to find associations between like, you know, your, your father reprimanded you that day. So you were feeling insecure in your masculinity or femininity. And that's what made you want to go look at porn or reach out to that crush. And so it was sort of like a, yeah, like a, a group therapy with like, um, widely discredited and harmful psychological theories. And the thing that really struck me was how far from repressing sexuality, like these, you know, these meetings, this whole program is like sexualizes everything. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, but then like, though, I think there was that tension of like, definitely like heightened feelings of sexual uh, energy. But then also you were rewarded and given approval and affirmation for, you know, going many, many weeks or months or however long without masturbating or looking at porn. And you were given leadership roles and sort of like extra attention if you sort of played, played the part really well. And so I think those were motivating factors. And then just the fact that like, if you're there, if you're in one of those programs, chances are your family does not accept you and absolutely will not accept you. If you sort of come out and say that you are queer and that you're okay with that and that you want to explore it. Um, So you're highly motivated to change or to repress your sexuality, even if there are those like undercurrents that are energizing. I think sometimes when you hear a story about someone who, knows that they are gay and continues to live and want to be a part of the evangelical community, I think, I, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, I don't mean this in any kind of condescending way, but it might be like, well, why would you do that? You know, like, it doesn't make sense. If these people are rejecting you, you know, you should leave. But I think your story is a really amazing, you know, window into why that that doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, it's that tension between, yes, they disapprove of your lifestyle. They think homosexuality is a sin, but there is there is love there. Yeah, yeah, there's so much. There can be so much love and tenderness too, even if there's emotional and spiritual abuse at the same time. And I found that, you know, a, a figure like Ricky, who, you know, when you read the book, you can see and sort of hear some of the ways that he was really manipulative and the way that he interacted with me and many people and inappropriate. And, and obviously he's living hope is still going. So he's doing this work that is continuing to cause harm and and damage in so many people's lives. And at the same time, Ricky was at my high school graduation and college graduation. And I ate lunch at Ricky's house every Sunday afternoon. And he would text, you know, on a hard day just to check in and remind, remind me that I was loved. And, you know, even my mom had a heart attack at one point and he, he was the one that drove me to the hospital to see my mom and was there for me to sort of like, you know, nurture me after she said something that was, uh, really hurtful. Um, and so it's like, I, all of these things sort of coexist together. And I think people underestimate the ways that evangelicals can be so zealous and so um, earnest in wanting to show love and kindness and can really just like shower you with affection and the sense of belonging. And even just the evangelical story in general answers such uh, powerful questions about meaning and purpose and, and community and identity. And I felt, I felt wanted there so much of the time. And I, I found that over over time, you know, it, it seemed like that belonging and acceptance was contingent upon me living into their vision of who I needed to be and measuring up to their standards that were pretty much impossible of of being living as a, a straight woman. But um, but there was still such kindness and tenderness too. 
We'll take a break to hear from our sponsors. With Friends Like These is brought to you by American Giant. It's more important than ever to support our local communities and businesses. Did you know that in 1960, 95% of all clothing was made in the USA? Today, it's only 3%. And you know, the nice thing about not going anywhere at all, anytime, is you do get to wear the same clothes every day, pretty much. The thing is, for me, it's made me really aware of how few clothes I really need. I have six pairs of jeans. Six pairs of jeans. I have approximately infinity leggings. I've started donating them, for sure. But what I want to do from now on is buy just a few things of really great quality, like American Giant. American Giant, make things better, make better things. American Giant has built a 100% USA-based supply chain with relationships to factories, workers, and communities at every step. It's not the cheapest, but it makes for a better sweatshirt and it's better for our people and our planet. American Giant makes clothing that's durable, not disposable, worn more and kept longer, clothes to be used so you need less. American Giant makes clothes that feel good. I have a hoodie that I basically have worn since March, Because the material is just the right weight, the zipper never snags, the sleeves are just the right length, and it's roomy without being, like, enormous, and it's made in the USA. It makes it feel even better. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code FRIENDS at American-Giant.com. That's 15% off when you use code FRIENDS at American-Giant.com. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals, the company on a mission to reinvent your medicine cabinet by creating clean and natural remedies that actually work, like propolis throat spray. This throat spray is your daily dose of defense when it comes to naturally supporting your immune system and soothing a scratchy throat. With just three simple ingredients, this spray is powered by sustainably sourced bee propolis, an incredible germ fighter that contains over 300 beneficial compounds. And thanks to Beekeeper Natural's obsession with research and testing, you know you can trust them. And I don't know about you, but I associate sore throat sprays with like really medicine-y taste that sticks with you for hours. Propolis throat spray gives you all the relief and it tastes like honey, not medicine, though honey is medicine. I have gotten a lot out of bee-powered honey as well. It's a little vial of energy that has now replaced my afternoon coffee. No jitters, yummy. It is easy to use these products. They are natural. I love supporting, you know, bees. You deserve the absolute best, which is why it's time to give your medicine cabinet an upgrade with Beekeepers Naturals. To save 15% on your first order, go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash with friends or enter code with friends at checkout. That's, bear with me, everyone. B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S. N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S dot com slash W-I-T-H-F-R-I-E-N-D-S to save 15% and meet your new medicine cabinet. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that is known for its delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is real, organic, fair trade, single-origin Arabic coffee with lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. During lockdown, caffeine suddenly started to really get to me. It gave me the jitters and made my heart race, but I really didn't want to give it up. I don't drink or smoke anymore, so so I need just this one vice, right? And of course, I need to wake up in the morning. Enter Four Sigmatic. It tastes like coffee. And it's easy on my gut, and it doesn't make me feel like I'm walking along the edge of a cliff all the time. All Four Sigmatic products are organic, vegan, and gluten-free. Plus, every single batch is third-party lab-tested to ensure its purity and safety. So you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. You're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? It tastes like coffee. I guarantee it tastes like coffee. It brews dark and nutty and tastes incredible. There are over 20,000 five-star reviews. And best of all, Four Sigmatic backs their products with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee, but this is just for with friends like these listeners. 
Get up to 40% off plus free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com slash friends. It's only for with friends like these listeners and is not available on the regular website. You'll save 40% and get free shipping. So go right now to foursigmatic.com slash friends. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash friends and fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Coming back to our conversation with Julie Rogers. I want to get back to the Living Hope uh, ministry because uh, you did spend so 10 years Living Hope and, and Exodus. And some people might have heard of Exodus. Obviously, it sort of has its own trajectory. But what they taught you about homosexuality, uh, that basically it almost is actually like that homosexuality isn't really a thing. That it's just everyone's just misfiring straight people. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's their belief that essentially we're all born heterosexual and that because of, you know, sin entering the world uh, and and our brokenness, that it's going to come out in different ways. Their explanation for uh, where same-sex attractions comes from is uh basically reparative therapy talking points that for, you know, you didn't connect with your same sex parent the way you were supposed to as a child. And you felt a sense of like mystery toward them. And that sense of mystery is eroticized at puberty and turns into same sex attraction, which is not true. Like a lot of straight people don't connect with their same sex parent and they end up straight. Like, and the same with sexual abuse. They'll say like, you know, if you had a great relationship with your same sex parent, it might be that you were sexually abused as a kid, which obviously sexual abuse is going to bring about like probably some issues uh, to work through later in life in one's sexuality, but a whole lot of straight people, a whole lot more straight people have been sexually abused uh, than queer people. And so it just, um, their, their sort of explanations aren't founded. At the same time, I came from a background where we didn't believe in science. So when Ricky explained all of this to me and told me where my attractions came from, I was like, well, I, that makes sense to me. Like, I don't know why I feel this way, but Ricky just told me why I did. So, you know, maybe, maybe his program and explanation of sort of like how to be rehabilitated will will work. And maybe this is a subtle distinction, but it struck me uh, reading your description of this ministry, that it's one thing to talk about homosexuality as a sin, which, and and to demonize it literally, maybe, and that's bad. That's terrible. But there's also this message of not existing, which is a more subtle message. But does that get internalized in, a, in the same way, in a different way? It, it, to me, it seems almost more insidious. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it just led to a complete lack. I had no sense of self uh, well into my you know 20s. and. It's something I continue to work on. Like there was just you, whoever you felt and believed you were, which part of that for me was being gay. If that uh, was all a lie, then, and it was all about just believing the truth that who I was, was about like believing and internalizing this message. And when that message comes out to be problematic or damaging or harmful, um, it's really hard to sort of figure out who you actually are then. The whole language around this stuff is fascinating. Another thing that um, pops out is strugglers, they call. <laughs> that's that's their name for people who want to convert. I don't even, I don't know what name I would use. I would call them, I guess, whatever they want to be called, right? But uh, this emphasis on struggle and like, it, it it's sort of, do you understand how it might be odd for someone on the outside to hear struggle? 
struggler, struggler, struggler. <laughs> yeah, it's all upside down. Um, it was just basically, it was a whole culture, right? And we adapted the language and vocabulary and beliefs of the culture. They refer, we were all referred to as strugglers because we struggled with same-sex attractions. So we weren't allowed to say that we were gay or bisexual or queer or whatever. Uh, that would be seen as like an identity that we were choosing to, sort of an identity label we were choosing that was rooted in sin. So the emphasis was really on like this war and this battle against our same-sex attractions, which ended up the way that was manifest in our lives is that we felt like we were at war with ourselves. And for many of us, it was a battle against our own bodies because these desires are obviously are emotional and, um, and, and physical. And so many of us ended up really struggling with things like self-harm, uh, body image, eating disorders, uh, sexual addiction and sort of like um destructive patterns around that and that's that's like you wouldn't think oh well, we're just referring to people as strugglers and a struggle with same-sex attraction and people don't often make the connection uh to the implications of that in terms of making someone putting someone to having someone go to war with their own bodies let's move on to exodus international because it has become kind of infamous um you intersect with them in your late teens, am I right? Yes. So Exodus was a, sort of an umbrella organization with over 150 member ministries like Living Hope operating under it. And all those ministries would come to Exodus for a big annual conference every summer. And I started going to those conferences with Ricky and Living Hope when I was 17. And you became a speaker on this circuit. Like this is another place where maybe it's important to see the structure that kept you enmeshed, right? Like you had a place here. Like this was a role for you. And you were saying earlier, like you didn't really know who you were. Yeah. So like I said, Ricky asked me to give my ex-gay testimony when I was 17 for their donor banquet. And then, you know, when that was like pretty well received, he sort of took me on the road with him. And whenever he would give talks at churches or seminaries, or colleges, he would have me come give my testimony, which is like a sort of a conversion story right before he would talk. And he kind of coached me through that. So he had me sort of incorporate a lot of his talking points into my story to sort of illustrate uh, illustrate his theoretical ideas. And so um, Exodus eventually heard me speak and asked me to give my testimony at their conference when I was, I think, 25 years old. And after giving my testimony at that conference, they asked me to start giving my testimony, sort of same thing, using a story to illustrate their points uh, on on tour with them, uh, which was like six to eight times over the course of a year. As I keep saying, people may have heard of Exodus International because it wound up uh, what's the right word? Exploding. Um, it's you know one of its um, leaders you know, denounced it, and it it seems when I hear hear the the words, I think bad. You know, that's like why would anyone associate themselves with this? And even when Exodus International came into your life, it was there was still some it, it there started to be some tension around the idea of how what do we do as Christians or as evangelical Christians about the gays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my story came to, like I, my life has been lived in an interesting time in terms of the evangelical response to queer people, because it, you know, it's just been in 2013 when Exodus shut down that evangelicals were starting to go, wait, can you maybe not like change? Can like, is them becoming straight? Maybe not the answer. And so they're coming up with other ideas around like lifelong celibacy and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, essentially it, it, it shut down because there was, um, a, like the APA and all like credited sort of medical associations said that the practice of conversion therapy, which is essentially what these ministries are doing. They said it's harmful and damaging. It doesn't work. And so, uh, between that and then seeing, just the damage that it was causing in so many people's lives that many people like Alan Chambers, the president at that time knew and loved. Um, by the time I came to him and told him that I couldn't, I couldn't be a part of it anymore. He was also like, I've seen the same thing. And I think, I think this is damaging. I think it needs to end. Just a few more ads. 
With Friends Like These is brought to you by Headspace. Life can be stressful under normal circumstances. 2020 has made everything worse. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes, and that's Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So, whatever the situation, Headspace really helps you feel better. Are you overwhelmed in the moment? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. I love that there are so many different meditations to choose from. I've been meditating daily since the pandemic started, which is hard for me to believe. But one of the reasons I can is because I can choose a different meditation every day. Some are really short. Some are 20 minutes. But I always get to do it. It's never boring. And meditation shouldn't be boring. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits and 600,000 five-star reviews and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash friends. That's headspace.com slash friends for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace full library meditations. That's headspace.com slash friends for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace full library meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash friends today. This episode of With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at affordable prices. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Why buy from a bunch of single product brands? Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. My husband has already gone through almost the entire five-pack of ramen that I bought him. He has been sort of possessive about it. He is a ramen snob, and I am not, so he thinks it would be wasted on me. I, however, am loving the household products we got from Public Goods. The hand soap smells delicious, and the bath mat is perfect for winter. It really, you can sink your toes into it. Public Goods ethically sources and develops each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives, still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. And they plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of their company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have already switched to this new everything store. We worked out an exclusive deal just for with friends like these podcast listeners. Receive $15, that's $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again. They are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash friends to receive $15 off your first order. And now back to our conversation with Julie Rogers, the author of Outlove, a queer Christian survival story. We get to a point where Exodus International disbands, and that appears probably to the outside world like a, a huge step forward. Oh, they're going to let gay people be gay. Yay. You know, um, but it's just a, it, it became a different kind of box from what I see in your story. Um, it almost to me seems like they simply flipped to considering their treatment of 
LGBTQ people as almost like, well, we have to look okay about this. Like, people can't think we're, we're doing it wrong, but we're still not thinking about them as people. Yeah, I think sort of mainstream evangelicals realize that the ex-gay narrative was harmful and that it probably didn't work. And it certainly was mocked and looked down upon by the broader culture and even a lot of just younger uh, evangelicals and Christians in general. And so it seemed to me like a lot of evangelicals were starting to think, okay, well, if they can't change and if queer people can't become straight and sort of live normal heterosexual lives, as they would say, then what's the next option? And there was a pretty large group of people that uh, were starting to say, you know, queer people could identify as gay and uh, sort of yeah, be honest about our orientation, but we had to commit to lifelong singleness and celibacy and still hold traditional views of marriage, uh, saying that, you know, same-sex sex is not permissible. And yeah, just conservative queer people who are celibate, I guess, was the next option. You become someone who can express this stuff for them. Because it starts to seem like the conservative evangelical community sees uh, the treatment of LGBTQ people as a PR problem. And you're kind of the solution to their PR problem. Yeah, I was one of a unicorn of like handful of unicorn gays, right? Like there's a small number of people that do believe that um, being gay is sinful. And so... I, you know, have to remember I was still, so at this point it's, I'm like 27 years old. I've just come out of all this ex-gay stuff. I'm still in a community that exclusively believes being gay is sinful and wrong and bad. And it was like, it was almost like I was progressive just to be able to say that I was gay. It was like that in itself was like, uh, just so wild and out there in these communities. And I found that a lot of evangelical leaders, uh, presidents of Christian colleges, pastors of megachurches, all these people were starting to look to people like me for answers on what to do with sort of what they would have called the LGBTQ problem. And I think the writing was on the wall at that point that, uh, you know, public opinion was rapidly shifting toward acceptance of LGBT people. They knew that same-sex marriage would be the law of the land and they had to figure out some sort of strategy so that they could continue to, you know, hold to their beliefs and not necessarily engage with LGBT people in ways that might make them feel complicit in a sinful lifestyle. So they turned to people like me, conservative, queer people who I guess like would, (sighs) yeah, essentially, yeah, that's a good way to put a complicated thing. they turned to people like me because we could sort of shield them from accusations of homophobia because they could say, hey, if we will accept people like Julie, who's gay, um, who sort of can live into our, our statements of faith, our statements of belief about marriage, then we're not discriminating against a whole class of people. We're just sort of, you know, hiring or offering services to people who align with our religious teaching. Well, there was even a guy, uh, I was speaking at a conference a sort of prominent evangelical conference at one point, And he was talking with me about my talk before I went. And he said at one point, you know, he was, I was saying, Hey, I just really want to help people understand we didn't choose to be gay. We can't change it. I want them to be more compassionate. And that was sort of like why I was speaking. And he said, you know, I really need you though, to just reemphasize sort of like Orthodox historic Christian teaching and the importance of holding on to traditional views of marriage And essentially what he ended up saying was like, I can't say those things because I'm a white, straight white man and I'm going to sound like a bigot. And he said it has more power coming from you. That's a funny way to, you know, spell still uh, homophobic just happened to be coming from a gay person. (laughs) But but, uh, actually, another thing that people outside this culture might have a hard time understanding is that you weren't being disingenuous when you were speaking about these things? No, I really wasn't. I felt like, you know, I would talk, I would, let's say I gave a 30 minute talk and for 28 of those minutes, I'm sharing this vision. I'm just sort of encouraging these people, like wanting 
largely straight evangelical audiences to understand what it's like to grow up as a queer person in their communities and trying to help them, you know, imagining like, I want them to be more compassionate to their kid when their kid comes out or with their neighbor. And so I'm trying to encourage compassion and repentance for their historical, um, you know, the church's violence against LGBT people throughout our history. And yeah, within that talk, I would say that I was personally committed to lifelong singleness and celibacy. And that that was sort of what, what I understood to be the way to honor God with my life and my sexuality. But that was just really a, um, it was, it was implicit. It wasn't like my message was focus on the family. And so it didn't feel dishonest to me. Do you mind if we talk about celibacy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's an oh, yeah, you don't mind. Oh, no, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> because that's another thing that I think might be tough for some people, um, that you would willingly do this, that you would find try to find this gray area where you could I, – I assume that's what this was a function of, right? That you could be a part of the community that you had been a part of for your entire life, that was the foundation of the way that you looked at the world. And also you, you needed to be able to say you were gay, to know that and be able to say it. And to commit to celibacy was the only option. Oh, for sure. It was the only option. And I was still only barely allowed to stay. Like you see when you read my book, how much discrimination I faced as a celibate lesbian in these institutions. But I think for me, um, at first I was just always so, I felt I had so much shame all throughout these years that I felt like almost grateful that people, that evangelicals, especially those in leadership would like, let me stick around. And it was just like, wow, like how lucky am I that even though I told them I'm gay, uh, they still, you know, aren't out rejecting me outright and they don't think I'm totally disgusting. And there was this real sense of like, yeah, just desperation for belonging in these communities. And at the same time, like being in a position as a speaker at these evangelical conferences that never really brought in openly gay people before the talk and getting to work at a university um, as one of the first openly gay chaplains in the evangelical college, like I did kind of feel like, wow, I'm able to do some good here. And so even if I'm not getting to sort of express my sexuality and experience any sort of love and romance in the way that I deeply desire to, I am able to like serve in an important role for really, really vulnerable people in these communities. And I guess I found enough purpose and meaning in that to make it worth it. Did your choice to be celibate seem like a holy choice for you? Did you feel like this was something that God wanted from you? I think I was so shut down and so fragmented that that wasn't even something I was really considering. Like I wouldn't enter, I wouldn't allow myself to entertain the possibility that I could be in a same sex relationship and God delight in that and God delight in me. And eventually, because I think I'm just like, I don't know. I was, I tend to be pretty empathetic. And so when other people around me would end up sort of leaving these ideas behind and, and deciding like coming to a place of believing God really does delight in their sexuality and in their relationships. And they would meet people with the same sex and fall in love and, you know, just sort of live out like normal lives of love and connection um, I would feel happy for them and I would feel the sense of delight and rejoicing, but it felt way too scary to allow, like to feel that for myself. It was a, all about survival. I simply could not express my sexuality and, and belong in my family, you know, and the only communities I had ever really known and the only places I had ever experienced any sort of love. So you're living a very fraught life. At this point, you're being asked to do enormous emotional labor without the comfort and solace of a loving relationship with another woman, right? And or with anyone. <laughs> you reached a breaking point. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was on staff at Wheaton College uh outside of Chicago. It's one of the large or most prominent evangelical colleges in the country. And I was sort of in a weird role of working with 
uh, queer students. I was in the chaplain's office working sort of uh, with queer students and overseeing a support group for them. And um, also dealing with uh, a lot of interaction with the president of the college and the provost who were making it, you know, they would pass on sort of like letters from constituents saying, would you let a, somebody who struggles with pedophilia work in your college? And they would send this to me and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this email? Like, um, and sort of, you know, there was a lot of censoring and they asked me to write a statement of faith, uh, sort of explaining why I referred to myself as gay. And ultimately the president and the provost were involved in editing my statement of faith. Uh, they were trying to say that, you know, I was open to God healing me and I would be open to marrying a man. And I was like, but I'm not like, that'd be lying. And we just went back and forth and back and forth like this, where I came to, to feel like there's these vulnerable queer students who are also so resilient and so amazing. And they wake up every day at this university where they know they're not wanted and they show up anyway. And I had students come and, you know, in coming out to me in, in my office that uh, one student started breaking out in hives and he's got just red spots crawling all up his neck because he, he's telling somebody this for the first time. And they just see this anguish in so many of these students who are, who are surviving this institution that's constantly um, more worried about their image and self-protection than the most vulnerable. And as I saw that week in and week out and in these meetings and in private roundtable discussions, the, the, the consistent choice to protect themselves at the expense of the most vulnerable, I got to a point where I absolutely could not participate in that system. And I couldn't, I couldn't be complicit in something that I came to see as so harmful for the people that I really believe uh, Jesus would, would treasure so deeply and hold so, so, so dearly. And so um, I got to a point where I just started writing and writing and writing at the end of my first school year at Wheaton College in the chaplain's office and sort of came out with the way that my views had shifted on this and the way that ultimately as a result of bearing witness to all, all the, all the different dynamics around this conversation that my theology shifted. And then I came to believe that the right pastoral response to LGBTQ people was to, to celebrate our love and to celebrate, um, to say that God delights in our, our bodies and in our love and in our desires and our relationships and our sex and our marriages. It's interesting. And this comes up in the book, but when I refer to the to the time that you were having to bear the tension of being a mascot, I hope isn't not too like again. It it, it I want what I want to do is denigrate the people that did this to you to make you be the spokesman of this hateful. So you having to do this, you know, be the voice of this thing that that was hurtful, um, and then also not have uh, the kind of emotional care and support and fullness of being and even being able to fill to feel as though God loved you in in fullness right and to me like that is what would be a would lead to a breaking point and what you described is the way you felt about other people that that's what led to your breaking point that you saw the way the students were being treated yeah it was because I I had grown up with this theology and this teaching from conservative Christians that said we're supposed to die to ourselves every day and in order to live to Christ and we're supposed to crucify our flesh. And I was willing to carry my cross, as they would say, you know, unto death. And there were so many moments when I was like, you know, I would just go home to my empty basement apartment and think like, I, I just, I want somebody to see like me as a human being. And I want to stop sort of feeling torn um, by this like debate, almost as if it's like sport that evangelicals are in between progressives and conservatives. And I just, I just want people to see my humanity. And there were that, that longing was deep and real, but it was ultimately, um, yeah, I think I would have 
like I said, carried my cross <laughs> until death if it hadn't been for seeing that it actually caused death in the lives of other people who I knew were so special. And I, I just, how can you not be moved by that? So when were you able to put down your cross? When did you accept this gift of love and fullness of acceptance from God for yourself? Well, I think, you know, when I shared that my views had changed um, and I sort of saw it all laid out there, I, it wasn't long before I was like, clearly I need to make some sort of connection between the idea that God would want this for other people and delight in other people. And like, maybe God would delight in me too. (laughs) And I, and I understood that intellectually. I didn't think that I would date for a while because I was like, I think I just need like a hot second to recover here. And I was working in restaurants, trying to pay the bills and just trying to sort of, yeah, find my footing. But I, I met my now wife, Amanda, a few months later, and she was just so hot and charming and and generous and kind. Like she's just this magnetic, amazing, warm, delightful human being. And I was like, I can't just meet somebody like Amanda Haidt and be like, Hey, can you wait a few years while I like go and get my shit together? You know, like, I think I could figure these things out in this kind of relationship with uh, a woman as amazing and soft and, and thoughtful as Amanda. Well, so I'm actually also from Texas, also raised by the people who were raised in the Baptist church. So I get uncomfortable talking about sex, but I love the way you talk about getting comfortable with sex yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's even more amazing that Amanda was such a sport about it because Amanda not. <laughs> Amanda had not been celibate for the last 10 years of her life. And she also, though, really understood like the context I was, you know, that I was coming out of. And so she wanted to take things slowly and just to really sort of, I guess, let me set the pace for things. And so we, we started like, I was so nervous to kiss. I hadn't kissed anybody in like seven years. So I remember texting my friend, Steve, like, Steve, what if I don't know what to do with my tongue? <laughs> and I was just like, so, I was just like, a, you know, like a teenager. And we started kind of making out and stuff. But I still came from this background that was like purity culture, like sex is bad, bodies are bad. And so we started engaging in what we called not sex for, you know, like for a little while to just get, so I could get used to it all in my body. And so that my body could be sort of brought along in the process and not have to disassociate from who I used to be, right. Or what I used to believe. And then I could do it in a way that felt integrated. And, um, and then that didn't take that long. (laughs) So. It is almost as if, and correct me if I'm wrong, it is the coming to terms with your sexuality, your body, the fact that you believe that God accepts your body is a delight to him, your sex life is a delight to him, or God, take the gender out of it, that leads to a complete reexamination of everything. Yes, um, it really did. I think... You know, it was also getting more distance from evangelical communities and just kind of seeing the way that those were often, maybe even unintentionally in many communities, pretty authoritarian in structure. And there was a sense of leaders having, um, you know, the objective truth. And so everything that I believed about the world, from why we were here, how I was to treat a colleague, what I was supposed to do with my mornings all of these things were sort of dictated me through this evangelical context, which they would have said it was like the Bible was our, our source of truth, but the Bible can be interpreted in thousands of different ways. And so it was really the leaders in our communities, our pastors, our theologians that we sort of gave credibility to that were, were, were shaping and forming our ideas about the world. So once, once they started losing credibility to me, once I saw how wrong they were about LGBTQ people about, um, you know, the way that, that white evangelicals growing up would talk about, uh, black Christians and interracial relationships often and black pastors, black theology. 
um, when I, especially once they sort of got behind Donald Trump and I was able to see the hypocrisy and how so many people that rejected me, my friends were enthusiastically enamored by Donald Trump. And I just started to feel like it was, you know, I, I struggled whether or not it, it was a cult, but there were some cultish things at play that once I was far enough away, I started to, to really have to reconstruct a sense of truth, like how we know what we know, where we find meaning, and overall just a moral framework that evangelicalism had provided for me for the first three decades of my life. What I really loved was this passage where you talk about what it feels like when you believe in God but aren't sure (laughs) about what to do with your life. Because I went through a very similar situation, right? Like bottoming out, coming to believe. Now what the fuck do I do? Um, And it was like, it was literally, you you write, I would wake up, make myself some coffee and think to myself, what should I do this Tuesday? And you would, you, you were thinking, what would God want me to do? At that small level. And I completely identify. And then being like, wait a minute, how do I know what God's voice is? I thought God was telling me to do X, Y, Z. You know, what? what, That's such a a beautiful way of describing it to me to bring it down to this, to the quotidian question of what does God want from me? I really want to be good. And I, I don't mean that in just a way that's like to feel good about myself. Like I want to do what's right. I want to be a force for good in the world. And I want to bring about, you know, I don't know, more gentleness and something redemptive. And when I, when evangelicalism sort of like once I was disillusioned by the story that they told about how I could be a part of something like that, it, I think I just became discouraged and fearful that any other story I found was maybe made up too. And that maybe, you know, I, maybe I couldn't know some things and I couldn't have access to the the truth or the right answers. And it was, I mean, it's, it will be a lifelong process, but I think like it's really hard to come to terms with when at one point you thought you knew it all. I think I, the way I see my faith now is more, where I used to say, I believe, I now say things more like, I hope. And, you know, hope is, leaves a lot more room for doubt. And my faith definitely just has a lot more room for mystery. But hope is still an active choice to try to, to sort of like put ourselves in the way of, of goodness and beauty in life. It's not to say that you can't outside of a faith structure, but we all have to find some way of aligning ourselves with, um, I don't know, like a broader sense of purpose. And especially those of us who want to embody things like forgiveness and radical love, it's hard to just muster that up on our own. And so I find that faith traditions sort of give me language that I might not naturally come up with on a given Tuesday about how to love people who are difficult to love. Thank you so much for joining us, Julie. Thanks so much for chatting. This has been really, really, really wonderful. And that is it for the show. This show is a production of Crooked Media, and you're probably hearing it right around Thanksgiving. So I want to take some time and give thanks. I am grateful for our producer, Allison Herrera, who has made this show sound literally 100% better and who has given so much of herself to it in suggestions and ideas. I am grateful for our regular engineer, Karen Qualley, who has so many clients but makes room for this show and for me and her schedule and her life. I'm grateful for Lily Alexandrov, who became my intern years ago and I just never let her quit. She's been the person who lets me know when the show needs a content warning, and she's one of the people who makes sure the show lives up to our ideals of hearing from people that aren't just straight white men. I'm grateful for Izzy Margulies, our newer intern, who probably doesn't realize what she's in for. She is a jolt of energy and ideas, even when I'm feeling burned out. 
I'm grateful for Liam McMahon, who manages to make all of our social media sound like me, even when it's not me. He gets the show in a really deep way. And I'm grateful for Whitney Pastrick, who is a goddamn saint. She is a source of sanity and grace in my work life and endless dog pictures when we're not talking about work. And of course, I am grateful for all of you. You have no idea what being able to do this show means to me. I mean, I hope you have some idea. I couldn't do it without you. So, please, take care of yourselves. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 